to goodness. Now listen, uh, I have, I'm going to throw you kind of a curveball here, Dr. Martin, or Dr. Paul. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm excited about the gospel, the, uh, uh, the, the Bible conference, and specifically the focus on the gospel, the life, and the message. But I intend to spend my time, believe it or not, in the Old Testament. And I'll tell you why, and this is kind of a thing with me, but uh, I am stunned at the dismissive attitude that so many have toward the Old Testament, and specifically toward the way the Old Testament does and must inform our understanding of the gospel. If you set out to understand, and many do, now you probably know that a rather well-known, I'm going to talk about this tonight, but a rather well-known popular preacher has uh, instructed us that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, that it just gets in the way, that in Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, how could this be more thoroughly criminally misread, but, but that, uh, that, that the apostles are saying, leave the Old Testament behind you. Oh, oh my goodness. It's the word of God to begin with. But honest to goodness, it is so important, and I'm going to kind of focus on that, and specifically the way that that Old Testament informs, what God teaches us in the Old Testament informs our understanding of the, here, I, I am, I got so much to do and I'm not going to get it done, but let me just, things come to my mind. And I'll probably do this again tonight. I don't know if it'll be exactly the same crowd, but I know some pastors are coming in. But, and I don't have it in front of me, the, the other, but I, I, and I may have done this before. But say with me the second verse of Robert Robinson's, Come Thou Fount. Here I raise, hither by thy help I'm come and I trust by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. Now watch this. He to rescue me from danger, what are you saying? Interposed. All right, now I'll get myself all worked up about a silly rewriting of a hymn, but the fact is that you pick up most any modern hymnal and go to that hymn, and it's been rewritten. And Ebenezer is gone, and it's gone because I must assume uh, Christian hymn publishers assume that the Christian public cannot handle a reference to Ebenezer. Their mind's going to go to Christmas Carol and Scrooge and the whole thing, and they can't get beyond it. That is probably the most pivotal passage of the Old Testament, and it, it, the, the, the punctuation point uh, that is, I'm sorry, the exclamation point on that blessed narrative in 1 Samuel 4 to 7 is Ebenezer. And it is so important. But what, I, what made me think of it is that, that that same verse has been rewritten later on because in the place of interposed, almost all hymnals now have bought me. He to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. Is it true that redemption is an apt picture of what happened? Absolutely. But what, what happened to interposed? Again, I assume that they figure, well, people won't understand that's the day of atonement. If you try to go anywhere in a mature, robust understanding of the cross and you don't bring with you all that God is teaching on that blessed Yom Kippur of the Old Testament, when, when, when blood was interposed, here's the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box. 
When I say Ark of the Covenant, I always say if you think of a really big boat, you need to spend more time in the Old Testament. I'm just telling you this. But, but the point is that the Ark of the Covenant, this blessed sacred box, which is, after all, the throne of Yahweh, and inside of the broken tables of the law, and here are the cherubim, and between it is the marvelous glory cloud which manifests the presence of God. But God looks down and sees this broken law, and what can cover that? You have to interpose the blood of a sacrificial animal. Actually, let's make it a little bigger. You have to interpose the blood of an innocent victim of God's choosing, which will cover your broken sin. That's so basic. And we are crippled as a people if we cannot bring the Old Testament with us. Does that make sense to you? Honest to goodness. Now, that's not even what I want to talk about this morning. But, but I, I got to be quick here. But I just... I would like to focus our thoughts, just as sort of an exercise in Old Testament study, I'd like to focus our thoughts, and, I, and I've got way too much to gr- cover the ground, uh, ground to cover, I can't even say it, on one of, I think, uh, uh, one of the most fascinating and instructive characters of the Old Testament. You ought to get to know this guy. His name is Josiah, King Josiah. Now, we're going to fly over his life very quickly, and I'm going to ask you to go with me to the scriptures. Go to 1 Kings, actually, by the way, it's, I'm sorry, uh, 2 Kings 22. The fact is, all right, let me begin this way. Let me give you just one minute of Old Testament theology. You need to understand that although God allowed human kings to rule, in Israel, first of all, the United Kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon. Now the divided kingdom, north and south, and the surviving kingdom. There was a several hundred year period during which kings ruled in Israel. They were viceroys. They were vice regents. Yahweh was king. He made himself king in 1446 at Mount Sinai. That's what's happening at Mount Sinai. Think of it this way. When you wonder what's going on at Mount Sinai, most fundamentally... The family of Abraham is becoming the nation of Israel. Now they are a nation. They have a king. That king always administers his rule through some human intermediary, Moses, Joshua, the judges, and now human kings. But know that, that these kings, and by the way, as if i got time for by the ways, but I I like to say, and this is an important dynamic, that when God allowed this to happen, 1 Samuel 8 acquiesced to the demand of the elders that they give him a king, that he kind of painted himself into a corner in this regard. That whereas before, think about this, King Yahweh, who's always going to rule through a human mediator over Israel, hand picks those human mediators, Moses, Joshua, the judges. Now, men are going to succeed to that role of, inter- in, uh, of, of, of representing Yahweh as king on earth just because, I like, like say, Abimelech, my daddy's the king. So, he's got, so what does God do? Because many of those men are going to be horribly wicked. So what does God do? He raises up prophets, and every king has a court prophet. And that prophet speaks directly for God, and that prophet is much more muscled up. He has much more authority than the king, all right? But nonetheless, we're going to look at Josiah and some of the kings about him. He is a viceroy. He rules as the representative of Yahweh. Secondly, well, I already did. I was going to say, let's talk about Old Testament history, but you know that uh, well into Old Testament history, King Yahweh allowed Israel to have a, succeri- uh, a succession of kings. What makes a king a king? The thing that distinguishes a king from every other sort of rule? 
succession. When the king dies, his son succeeds him. That's what makes a king a king. So God says, okay, we'll have that. So first of all, you have Saul, David, and Solomon, all 12 tribes under one king. And then you have Solomon's son, Rehoboam, does foolishly, and the kingdom is divided. Now you've got north and south, but the north is carried off by Assyria in 722. How are your Old Testament dates? And now you have a surviving kingdom. Our man, Josiah, is ministering as king under Yahweh in Jerusalem during those latter days. The northern kingdom has been carried off. That area to the north is really kind of a loosely held Assyrian province, but uh, he is ruling to the south. All right. What is it that makes, and by the way, too, it is interesting that Josiah gets a lot of ink, which would suggest to me that God wants us to understand about him because he gets Two chapters in Kings, 2 Kings 22 and 23, and then two chapters in Chronicles. Remember, retelling it from Judah's standpoint, 34 and 35. Now, if you've spent any time reading the divided monarchy and the surviving monarchy, you know that the record tends to give a king eight, ten verses and is on to the next one. To get two chapters in each of these Chronicles is hugely important. All right, very quickly, I have seven count them points, so am I in trouble or what? Uh, number one, all right, points. What is it that makes, why do I say, what is it about Josiah that makes him fascinating? Well, number one, he is specifically identified, and I took you to the verse in 1 Kings 2, uh, 20, 2 Kings 22, 2. He is, he is identified as, uh, you know what, that's not the verse I want. Hold on here, 2 Kings 23, 25. So if you jump down to 23, I really want you to see these verses. But 2 Kings 23 and verse 25, we are told that before him there was no king. This is talking about Josiah. It's uh, toward the end of uh, the narrative in Kings. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. He was, and this counts David, he was the best king who ever sat on the throne of Judah. That's amazing. That's, 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 that's a divine assessment. Secondly, uh, he was the greatest reformer. Now, all right, in the, in the history of the northern kingdom, remember the northern king broke off and had their own capital up in Samaria and then and, and, uh, Tirzah and, and uh, Samaria and so on. They had 19 kings, every one of them. Remember now. Every one of the narratives of the successive kings in both Chronicle and Kings begins by assessing a, a prophetic assessment. Was he good or was he bad? Did he do good or did he do evil? In the north, there were zero good kings. Every one of them, by divine assessment, was evil. In the south, there were 19 kings, and there were eight of them who are denominated good. They did that which was right. Three of those eight are denominated Asa, Hezekiah, and, and Josiah as reforming kings. Now, I, I want to uh, go with me, if you will, to Second uh, uh, Kings 23. That's where we were. Let me read to you. I'm skipping around here. Let me read. You read with me. That is, I'm going to read. You listen. But uh, beginning in verse 3. This is stunning. And you know what? It's stunning and this is, you'll not understand, you'll not appreciate Josiah unless you appreciate the backdrop of unspeakable, unimaginable wickedness into which that nation had plunged itself. And that's what he's dealing with. And so it says, just listen to this. The king stood by a pillar 
He made a covenant before the Lord. He called his people to make a blood covenant, to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. I'll come back to that. All the people took a stand for the covenant. Now watch this. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest, the priest of the second order and the doorkeeper, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and Asherah. Now just think of that. The temple that Solomon had built was crowded with, with, with idol, idols to the most, uh, I, I can't stop on it, for all the hosts of heaven. This is what they brought out of the temple. And he burned them outside Jerusalem, the fields of Kadron, uh, and carried their ashes to Bethel. I want to come back to that. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, to all the hosts of heaven. He brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord, and he took it down to the brook Kadron outside Jerusalem and burned it and ground it to ashes. Can you imagine the drama? These are idols which had been placed in the temple of the Lord by the kings before him. Drop down to verse 8. He brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled their high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. That's so important. Remember, in the Old Testament, it's always from Dan to Beersheba. But that includes the northern kingdom. So now we have only the southern kingdom and the northern place is Geba. So from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places at the gates which were at the entrance of the gate. Here's something interesting. Which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. Now, that's not our Joshua, by the way. It's, a, it's a, uh, some sort of governor. What's interesting about this, oh, I'm in such trouble, is that uh, just about two years ago, there were two boule. Oh, I'm into this now. You know what a boule, or a boule is? It's a, it's a piece of clay which was part of a signet ring, or a, it was a signet, and it was placed on a document, and then that document... Uh, was burned in destruction. Everything got burned except for the bula. And the bula, that little piece of clay, hardens. And so archaeologists find that. And one of the most interesting, really, field of archaeology, uh, archaeological artifacts is all these dozens of bule which have been found, which remember some biblical character. And up until those boule were found, two of them, both of, say, governor of the city, the Bible was challenged right here because they said... We've never seen that title. The only place we ever see the title governor of the city is here on the page of Scripture. So that's probably just poor history, and it proves that it was written late, and the guy didn't know what he was talking about, and he made a mistake here. Now they pull out a boule from exactly this period in Jerusalem, two of them side by side, governor of the city. But that's not what we're here to talk about. But at any rate... Forgive me. Look at verse 10. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire. So in, in the Bible, kind of the last stop on the train to depravity is always this god Molech who supposedly devours human babies. It is the, the Old Testament abortion chamber. Oh, I haven't got time to develop it, but he tears all of that down. All right. I'm saying Josiah is, is, is identified in the Bible as the best of all the kings. He was a great reformer. Uh, very interesting conjecture in this regard. Spend just a moment with me. Is what were the influences that God used? And we can recover them if we do a little work. 
I think there are two primary influences that God used to turn young Josiah. And by the way, I didn't read this, but we're told explicitly, and this is the only king where we have this kind of demarcation of his age, which is kind of interesting, that he became king at eight. His father, Ammon, had just been assassinated. In the eighth year of his reign, when he was 16, the Bible says he turned to the Lord God. When he was 20, he began these reforms. The Bible is explicit about this. And when he was 26, he set out to repair the temple. So there were a lot of years in there where some influences at work on him. Now, I think one of the most important influences was Zephaniah. Because if you go to Zephaniah 1.1, I'm not going to take you there, but you go to Zephaniah 1.1 and it says explicitly that Zephaniah ministered in the days of Josiah. And, and, and sometime, imagine young Josiah, newly on the throne, even before his teens, but early teens, and you've got Zephaniah confronting him and read through Zephaniah and imagine the impact that would have. I think Zephaniah. But there's another thing that is so fascinating, and I can get lost in this, but if you go to Second uh, Chronicles 33 and verse uh, uh, 10. Now listen, I do not have time to develop the, all right, very quickly. Manasseh, all right, if Josiah was the best king Judah ever had, Israel ever had, Manasseh was the most wicked he reigned for 55 years. In 2 Kings 22, you have the, 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 the catalog of his wickedness. I, I, I was going to read it to you. It is, it is breathtaking. I mean, the high-handed. He was the one who built the altar to Baal in the temple. He was the one. Manasseh was the most wicked king. Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. And Manasseh was succeeded by his son, Ammon, who only lasted for two years. And so the Bible goes out of its way to make the point that, that Manasseh was the most wicked king in the, uh, in, in, in the Old Testament. But in 2 Chronicles 33, and i got to get there, hold on. I just got to type it in. Uh, you know, it is such a, go to verse 10. It is such, well, I'll just read it. 2 Chronicles 33, 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria. Now this is before. Remember now Assyria has taken control of the north, but the south is still, is still independent. But there, the Jew, uh, Assyria is very, very powerful, and they've made Judah a vassal. And so they come down and took him with hooks. Folks, it's, that's the hook, Okay. That's what they would do, put a hook in his cheek. So they took him with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, carried him off to Babylon. When he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father and prayed to him, and God received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now it goes on, and I was going to read it to you, uh, the reforms of Manasseh. Young Josiah. Now remember, he's eight years old when he becomes king. So he was, he was there were two years of Ammon. There may be an overlap there. But Josiah was probably too young to actually personally view and appreciate his grandfather coming back home and then turning. But the stories would have been, 
I think Manasseh was a huge impact on young Josiah. And, and it's so fascinating that Josiah, when he's 80, becomes king. When he's 16, he turns his heart. Folks, ponder what that means. His father, Ammon, was as wicked as was Manasseh. And yet, when he was 16, Josiah turned his heart to the Lord. I think it was because God brought into his life some remarkable, powerful influences. Zephaniah, Manasseh. So, a fourth reason I think he's so, he's so uh, oh, I'm just going to have to tell you this story. Go to 2 Kings. Uh, oh, I was going to read this to you. I love this story. Go to 2 Kings 22. Now, you're going to, I'm going to read it to you first. <laughs> uh, look, in 1 Kings 13, there is a remarkable story. I'm just going to tell it to you. This is what happened. In chapter 12, all right, how's your Old Testament history? In chapter 12, Jeroboam has become king in the north. He does a wickedness, such a wickedness, by the way, that throughout the rest of the Old Testament, I like to say Jeroboam's middle name becomes who made Israel to sin. Every time we come to Jericho, Jeroboam, it's Jeroboam who made his, how did he make Israel sin? He built two high places, one at Dan and one at Bethel, and he erected golden calves there. Now, this is 931 B.C. Josiah is 640, actually after that. So 300 years earlier. Now, this is what happened. Jeroboam, and this is such a dramatic scene. Jeroboam, the king of the north, the, king, the kingdom is just divided. He's established these high places, and he's at the one in the south. There's one in the north, Dan, and one in the south. He goes down to Bethel, and his priests are ministering, and he's actually being part of it. And God sends a man of God. We're not told this guy's name. And he came and cried out against the altar at Bethel. And this is what he said. Now, I'm in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse uh, then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, now listen to this, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, now listen to this, behold, this is 300 years earlier, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you, altar, he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. This is one of the most fascinating passages. i got to tell you. For one thing, in the next verse, he says he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. The altar shall split apart. And then it says in the next verse that the altar split apart. What's fascinating about that is that what was the first test of a man who claimed to be a divine prophet? What he said was going to come came to What if it's only going to, it did come to pass? But what if it doesn't come to pass for 300 years? How are you going to, so on often times, what you have is a short-term prophecy. I'm going to tell you that, that that altar is going to implode on itself in the next verse. That's what happens. But that's to vindicate his, 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 his authority as a prophet and to give force to the prophecy that a child by the name of Josiah. Now you go, I, I, listen, it's in uh, 1 Kings chapter uh, uh, 20, I'm sorry, I got it written down here. I'm sorry, 2 Kings uh, 22 and beginning at verse 15, and it says specifically that, oh, I got to read it, I'm sorry. Uh, 2 Kings 22. 
2 Kings 22 and verse, what did I say, 15? Uh, oh, I knew I was going to do this. 2 Kings 22 and verse 15. 2315, you're right. That's exactly right. I was in such trouble here. Thank you so much. How's this for losing your point entirely? All right, here it is. I knew it. Moreover, the altar, that, this is talking about the reforms of Josiah. The altar that was at Bethel in the high place with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. There it is. Remember, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, middle name, who made Israel sin, had made both ought altar and the high place. Josiah break down. He burned the high place. He crushed it to powder. He burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones of the tombs, and he burned them. Remember what, what the man of God had said to the priests? Your bones are going to be burned. Folks, whenever you're in the Bible, understand that this is a culture who pries beyond what is hard for us to imagine caring for the body of somebody who's died. And oh, I can go on and on about that. But for these bones to be burned is just, it, it's, it's huge. But anyway, then he takes the gravestone of the, of, the, of the man of God and preserves it. All right. So I'm saying, why is Josiah such an interesting guy? <laughs> he is the fulfillment of that prophecy made 300 years later. Now i got to be done. Two other things. Number one, and I'm just going to tell you the story. In the course of his reforms, Josiah's workmen found in the rubble of the temple the book of the law of God. And how I would love to talk to you about this, one of the most um, overarching heresies of Old Testament study is built on this because the critical world says that they didn't find it, that this was when it was written. They go to this passage where the workmen are down in the basement of the rubble of the temple and they find the book of the law of God. And they come and they give it to, they give it to the scribe and the scribe comes and reads it before Josiah and he becomes more zealous in his reforms as he reads this, this, this book. We're told that what really happened was that there never was a Pentateuch, a law of, uh, you know, the, 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 this is either the Pentateuch or the or Deuteronomy. I think it's, I'll, I'll talk to you about it. But that it was at this time that it was written, you know, somebody got, you know, wrote in an old scroll and took it down there and kicked a little dust on it and then some Rube Jewish folk came along and picked it up and said, oh, what do you know, a book of the Bible, and that's good enough for us. So, oh, it's, oh, it's just bottomlessly stupid. But, but on the other hand, I shouldn't have gone down that road. The fact is, this is a huge moment in Old Testament history, and I believe, for my money, that what this book was, was the original writing by Moses. If you go to Deuteronomy 20, uh, 31, it says that after Moses, as Moses was about to die, he said to the people of Israel that this book, this set of five books actually, but this book that I've written is not a vain thing for you. It is, a, it is your life, and therefore read this book and keep it, and it put it up before the ark. You know, the work has been done on the stone, the rock, which is under the dome of the rock, which is where the temple sat and where the holy of holies was and curiously on that rough hewn natural rock there is a place that's been very carefully leveled a little shelf and it's exactly where it's got to be between two cuttings for foundations if you're going to build a temple there and it's level and it's exactly the width of the ark of God the the box which did sit there and when this was developed there was some 
some, some were trouble because it's the exact width, but it's a little deeper. And then it was pointed out that in Deuteronomy it says that Moses took the book of the law, that's what it's called, and laid it up before the Lord. And I believe that Moses and Joshua after him and Samuel after him and the judges after them or the prophets after them would actually add to that library of divinely breathed books and they were kept there. And in all of the wickedness and so on, they'd been lost. Not that the whole Bible had been lost. I'm not convinced of that. But the, those very spe- and when, when they were brought and Joshua was brought face to face with this reality, you know, the Bible lays down certain demands for the human king. That is, Deuteronomy lays certain demands for the human king. And one of them is he's to have a copy of the book of the law at his elbow. And you see, Yahweh ruled as king in the Holy of Holies above the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what? He had a copy of the book of the law at his elbow. And I think that's what was discovered, and it wrought such, such repentance in the heart of Josiah that he renews his efforts and so on. I haven't got time to deliver, to talk about it. One other point, and that is that it's so fascinating. You're just going to have to let me tell you the story. You read about it extensively in Second Chronicles 34. But after the book of the law was brought to Josiah and he realized, again, he gave himself with more zeal and sacrifice to, uh, to reforming and so on, he sent to the prophet Huldah. And he seems to be asking, will God withdraw his hand of judgment? God had already said, because of the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, who did repent, but because of his sins. And the fact that the people embraced them so, God had said, it's over. You're going down. I'm going to raise up a foreign nation. Now Josiah goes to the prophet and says, could there be a reprieve? And the prophet says, no, no, but I'll have pity on you, Josiah, and it'll not happen until you're dead. And so Josiah dies mysteriously in 606 at a battle with the, the pharaoh of Egypt. And uh, it's really a strange thing what he was doing. But anyway, he dies. Three years later, Nebuchadnezzar shows up and begins to subjugate the southern kingdom. Does that make sense to you? Listen, Josiah, I said, I think he's one of the most fascinating and instructive men. Listen. What instruction do we take away? I'm going to leave it largely to you. But does not this absolutely leap off the page? It is stunning what God can do in the worst of all possible circumstances with a person who will simply, and in every case there will be Godward influences, there has to be, with a person who will give himself entirely, sacrificially, to obeying God. Josiah is amazing. We sang the song, I counted all but loss in order to know the glory of the cross. Can I tell you something? The cross is not a symbol. It's not an icon. It's not even a burden. Some people, you know, that's the cross. The cross is not a burden to bear. It's an instrument of execution. And the glory of the cross is honoring Jesus' words that we give ourselves away just as he did. Now here's a man in the Old Testament who gave himself entirely to the will of Yahweh and was used in ways that 
stun us to this day. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for that we know that all of these things were written for our admonition. These, these, these old Hebrew stories were written for our admonitions, stories from the Hebrew scriptures. And so, Father, I would pray that we might learn uh, from Josiah, from his dependence upon you, from his obedience to you, from the marvelous way in which he was used by you. Father, might you instruct us through that. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.